morning, everyone. Um, junior church kids, stand up. Don't move. Stand up. Okay? Now, I want all of you junior church kids to stand up and look back there. There's a lady named Becky. Becky Moore back there. She's turning 81 tomorrow. So tell her happy birthday. Okay, and now you're dismissed. So I just had to kind of embarrass Becky a little bit back there. That was awesome. She's shaking her finger at me. Why? Yeah, that's funny. So uh, it has been a very rough year, year and a half or so. Um, So many things have been happening, and so many of those things have been perceived as not good or not even perceived, just have been not good. So I'm going to just say a few things, and uh, it's not to kick anybody. It's not to say where you stand on this side or that side at this moment. I really don't care where we stand on it. Um, I can talk about that later with you as long as we're going to speak in love and grace towards each other, but I just want to set the scene for something for a moment. In the last year and a half or so, we've had a pandemic that some have proclaimed was overrated, used as a tool for fear and control. We've had riots that were promoted as protests. We had an administrative change which resulted in a greater division of our country. Politicians seem to be promoting immoral behavior and turning blind eyes to obvious wrongs, proclaiming to be transparent and civil, and yet they're not. Our schools have become a huge target for socialism. Our communities are infiltrated with the BLM, the love is love, and the LGBTQ plus propaganda. There have been lots and lots of changes in this COVID era, and even more in the post-COVID world. How we go to work, go to the doctor, how you shop, how you go visit with people, go to school, or even go to church has dramatically changed. We really willingly didn't um, go along, make, we didn't want the changes, that's what I'm trying to say. We willingly didn't say, let's change everything in this, but we went along with it. It's been difficult. For the most part, humans are adaptable, some of you more than others. And we've accepted these changes, even if we do it reluctantly. And that's on the worldly issues. And again, that's where you stand on that right now, at this moment. I I don't care. Because here's the thing. This past year has seen the church scattered. Scattered from our traditional routines and practices, which may or may not be good. But what do we do now? What do we do now? Far too often, church only acts when it's required to by external circumstances. We've been scattered away from our routine and reliance on the church building. Our traditional and comfortable ways of doing church are no longer there. They've been disrupted, and we've had to develop new and different techniques just to try and do the same old. And yet, what is the mission of the church? 
As we go through our study in Acts, we found it in Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. The church was given that mission in the beginning. And we carried the title church. So therefore, the mission still applies to us. We have the same mission. To be witnesses, to tell people about Jesus everywhere. And right now, the church needs to see that God is moving us. Not the culture. Not dictations from other governments or countries. God is trying to move his church. We are scattered more so than any recent generation can remember or imagine. As we continue to follow the, the Holy Spirit through our study of the book of Acts, we come to these spiritual ancestors that are experiencing a very similar style of circumstances, a change in their lifestyle. Last week, we looked at Stephen's sermon, the longest sermon in the uh, book of Acts, how he saw the troubles that were coming, and he chose to stand against the troubles of this world, to stand in his faith of God, to be unmoving, a stance that brought his physical death. This caused a new movement, a new change in their culture. So in Acts chapter 8, we're going to ver read verses 1 through 3, Saul was one of the witnesses, meaning of Stephen, and he grieved completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Persecution started. That, that's what happened there. It's not an isolated event, but a culturally persecution against the church has invaded the Jerusalem believers there. And because of persecution, the church was scattered. It said they went out to all these different regions, all everybody but the apostles. Persecution scattered the church from Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if we had people being dragged out of their homes and taken to prison because they went to church, none of us would say, that's a great thing, let's sign up. We would say, this is a bad thing that's happening. And yet, what does God do? Generally, people think persecution... It's bad. I, I don't want it. It hurts. It's painful. It's costly. Financially, emotionally, and physically. But look what the church did. They were getting persecuted because of their faith. Look in verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. They are in trouble for preaching the good news, so they get scattered and they preach the good news. What seems like a disaster is actually turned into a method to fulfill their mission. The believers didn't shy away. They didn't run and hide. The believers scattered and started preaching and teaching. The people did what came naturally to them. They talked about the amazing, significant transformation that they'd experienced in Christ. See, the persecuted church talked despite 
being persecuted. I've said this many times. If you want to get someone who's a little more mature in their years, and they have grandchildren, if you just want to get them talking, ask a couple questions about the grandkids, an hour and a half later, you'll still be sitting there. Because they can't help but talk about their grandkids. They love them to pieces. They love what they're doing to their children. They love all these aspects. It's, it's true. I just saw grandparents, especially grandmas, going, yes, it's true. They love it. Why are they so easy to talk about their grandchildren? Why does this come so natural? Because they love them. Because they want to be involved with them. Because they just can't get enough of them. And a true church will talk about Jesus even more than my mom talks about her grandkids. Many people... Or we need to know that despite persecution, we need to talk. And we're in the same situation. Our pattern of life, our pattern of worship, our experience has been irrevocable. How do you say that word? Irrevocable. See, you said it. Irrevocably changed. There we go. I had to slow down. Many people have stated, I just want to get back to normal. I just want to go back to the way it was. <laughs> it's not. I've heard people say that when it was in the 80s. They wanted to go back to that other way, the 70s, with that weird, fangled music. And then in the 70s, people were saying, I want to go back to the way it was. We, we say it all the time, and you know what? It never goes back. Okay? This is normal now. It just is. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree to it. It is. I had a discussion with my boys. I can't wait till we don't have to wear masks anymore. Just quit. This is the new normal. Okay? It's, it's going to be new normal. And in 10 years, we're going to have another new normal. The old style of the world is not coming back. The question we need to answer is not how do we get back to the old normal, but how much of Christ's transforming, transformation are we experiencing and sharing? Because Christ is involved in my life, because I have been redeemed and sanctioned by him for his ministry, how much am I letting that come out? Or am I just saying I hate mass? Or I hate standing here? Or I hate having this? It is fine to discuss that, but when it comes to church matters, when it comes to my faith, Jesus is all that matters. That is all we need to talk about. Are we going to be silent? Are we going to be hidden? There is some stuff coming through legislation right now that if it goes through, is going to dramatically hurt the church. And are we going to shy away? Are we going to stand up and say, on this rock, I will not move? If we're forced to leave our areas of comfortability, are we going to still say, I know Jesus? Because I know Jesus, I had to leave my comfortable spot back here, but I tell you right now, I'm not living for there, I'm living for there. Are we going to do this? Are we, the church, going to tell people about the transformation we have had because of Jesus or has this change in our normal shown that people who proclaimed it may not have had a transformation? And we've gone through 
emotions. That's a very bold accusation. And I remember when I was writing this part, I was like, ouch. And I started praying about this because Satan doesn't like when we preach truth. Just, you need to know that. And so when you go to preach truth, Satan's going to attack you. And so as I was doing this, I'm like, I know this is true, and I know some people are going to feel like I am saying this directly about you. And I did not have anybody's name in mind when I wrote this except me. So if, if it's hitting you, I'm sorry, I did not say it to you. I said it to me. Maybe God's saying it to you. I'm not. If I have not been transformed enough, maybe that's why I'm not talking about Jesus enough. That, that's just the truth. Let's see what else happened when the church was scattered. Starting verse 5. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Philip, he went out to the city and into the Samaria area. He is one of the deacons, just like Stephen, that we read about in chapter 6. Now, Jews and Samaritans hate each other, okay? It's not like they didn't like each other. There's a kind of a feud or an animosity towards from um, Blazers to Garrett, right? That's just... That's cool. And you know what they say? That's cool. It's just this little animosity, and it's usually just a school rivalry. That's not what this is between the Jews and Samaritans. Most Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They didn't even want to come close to being tainted by the smell of those wicked, evil people. Samaritans and Jewish relations had not been good for a very long time. How many of you heard of the Hatfield and McCoys, right? Some of you are related to them. Yep, yeah. <laughs> there was a feud in America, right? And what was the feud about? Uh, there's so many different theories, nobody really knows. And it was, you know, hundred so years of it. Well, for over 500 years, there was a feud between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. The Jewish people had looked down on the Samaritans as half-breeds or heretics. That'll make you feel good, won't it? They would avoid any Samaritan contact. The Jews and the Samaritans feuded all the way back to the book of 1 Kings. They hated each other. Now fast forward to chapter 6 where Philip becomes one of the deacons. Stephen dies in chapter 7 and then chapter 8, what happens? The persecuted church went to new places. They went to places outside of their comfort zone. They went to places they really wouldn't go to. Did it never occur to the disciples that there might be some folks out of their comfort zone that uh, would be open to experiencing the power and transformation of the gospel? Or were they focused on Jerusalem? And when you read, they were focused on Jerusalem. Hey, let's just keep this going. Let's keep it contained. Peter preached and over 3,000 people were saved. That's a good day. He deserves a raise. That's a great sermon. Stephen preaches and he dies. That's a bad day. 
And yet, what does the church do before Stephen? They stay contained. And God said, you go out. Tell people here, then there, then there, and everywhere. And because they stayed, persecution happens. Because they were making a name that says, if you don't know Jesus, you don't go to heaven. It doesn't matter about your rules and regulations. It doesn't matter how long you've been to church. Yeah, I think the idea that we all have our assigned pews, right, or chairs in church, that goes all the way back to the temple. It has to. They, that's my spot. You can't sit there. We all have this. And yet the Christians, the new believers, were saying it doesn't matter on any of that. It's Jesus. That's it. And it caused this big wave in this persecution in Saul, which we're going to learn a lot more about in the coming months, hated him. Start persecuting them. Philip demonstrated the power of Christ by healing and casting out demons. He showed them the power of God in a compelling way. And what were the results of these people they couldn't stand? The people put their faith into Jesus and were baptized. Because of post-COVID, are we, the church, willing to go out to new places? To places we may not like. To go out and reach and preach about Jesus to people outside of our comfort zones. Part, part of the reason we don't want to go to new places is because it's awkward. We're, we're uncomfortable. Uh, and yet, what did the first church do? What did Philip do? And I want to say this very lovingly. The church needs to follow this example. We need to quit coming to a building and actually be the church. And get out there and go to new places to tell about Jesus. But when we do that, when we get out of our uncomfortable, or get out of our comfortable areas, strange things can happen. Look at verse 9. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Hold on real quick. I've heard many people, I've heard sermons say, now he was just a trickster. He just did, you know, magic tricks and, and you know, hey, I can move my thumb. Right? That's the type of stuff he was doing. But, but we need to understand, all the way back to the Old Testament, there were people who performed miraculous signs that were given the ability by Satan. Even all the way back to the ten plagues. Pharaoh was not impressed because his magicians could do some of the same things. Satan works. He can do many things, and he's doing it through Simon. Everyone, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now, there's a big transformation. The people believe Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed, and he was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Here's where this event of the persecuted church gets so interesting. Luke describes this specific person who was part of the, the Samaritan expansion of the church. Simon the magician, well-known, influential, and he amazed people, and they came to him, and, and he loved it. Now, it doesn't say that, but if they're calling you the great one, you're going to like it. I mean, 
I think we should try it. Everybody call me the great one, and we'll see how I feel. That's not fair. But he was very well known and influential because of the powers and the signs that he could do. Simon was not, however, using the power of God to perform these wonders. His motivation for believing and following Christ aren't clear. We aren't told why he became a believer, but we are told he did believe. Maybe it was professional curiosity. He kept following around, trying to see all these great things. But when the church goes to new places, they're going to meet new people. When we scatter out into the world, we're likely to meet people that are not like us. I'm from originally from Wyoming, and you people are not like Wyoming people. You're not. I, I can drive from a town to find the next Walmart an hour and a half, two hours away. Now, some of you would say, that's great. That's awesome. Those are mostly guys. The ladies are like, I'm not driving that far for groceries. I know that my nearest neighbor to my grandpa was three miles away. That was his nearest neighbor. It was awesome. You need a gas? You might as well pack the whole family. It's going to be a day trip just to go to the gas station. And it's a whole different culture here in Indiana where you swim through the air when it's summertime because of humidity. And I got to see something really interesting. There are different people, really weird people in all these different areas. And yet they all need the one thing, Jesus. That's all they need. Whether you're tall or short or wider or not, don't we all just need Jesus? And that's what this new church was seeing. They went out, they were doing this. Staying with the same type of people will not get us very far as a church. If all we try to do is maintain and keep this, we are locking up the doors and putting out signs that says, don't come here, we're happy as we are. If all we want to do is just keep it comfortable and easy. We need to reach out to people who do not know Jesus, and that means reaching out to them. Notice the church didn't stay in Jerusalem. The church, the people, went out and preached about Jesus. Let's go to verse 14. Then the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people in Samaria had accepted God's message. They sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had not... um, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon the believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. As the word of these conversions of the Samaritans spread, the Jerusalem church said, wait a minute, that's different. They're not like us. They dress differently. They talk differently. And so they sent Peter and John to go and appraise the situation. Probably to discover whether or not their conversion was legitimate. And given the history between the two groups, there was probably some suspicion, is this really true, or are they just pretending and going along with the the uh, movement here? Remember, at one point in his life, John, the Apostle John, wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village because they hadn't welcomed Jesus. They rejected Jesus, and John said, do you want me to call down fire and get rid of this town? And he 
was eager to do it because he didn't like the people. And now he had reason to not like them in his mind. And yet here's this apostle, not only receptive to the uh, Samaritans' faith, but then they laid hands on them, prayed for them so that they'd receive the Holy Spirit. If you recall our message in chapter 6, the elders, the real church leaders, were to oversee all matters of faith. And we can see that the persecuted church continued to do this. Philip didn't do this part. Peter and John, the real church leaders, did this. They laid hands, blessed them, and gave them the Holy Spirit. Did Philip not know how to do this? Well, he'd been healing people, performing exorcisms. He was preaching. He was very knowledgeable and powerful. So why didn't he just do this? I, I truly don't believe that this is the case that Philip didn't know. First off, Philip was acting as a normal Christian ship. Let me say that again. Philip, in everything he was doing, was acting as a normal Christian, which was preaching and teaching about Jesus, period. Christians tell people about Jesus. And many scholars would believe that the indwelling of the Spirit came to these new believers in this way, through the apostles, so that the original disciples could clearly see that God had accepted and included the Samaritans in the church. The apostles had to overcome the legacy of racism, of arrogance and hatred, so that they could be brothers with other people in faith. So after I read that, my question is, what about us? Are you and I willing to go out and overcome your own personal issues so that others can come to Jesus? Are, are we going to say it with our mouths, or are we going to say it and live it? Are you willing to go out and overcome your own personal issues so that people can come to know Jesus? Are you willing to step out and help somebody else come to salvation? We like to say we will. I've heard many people say, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But when it comes to actually doing it, many of us stumble and falter. I mean, let me just share some examples here. I've been at a church where they turned their noses up at a man because of the color of his skin. They really came, and they were mad at me because I walked this guy in, he sat down at a pew, and this guy said, that's my seat. And I'm like, well, I don't, yeah, but he's sitting there. He's colored. Really? That's, that's what you want to talk about here? There are churches that have shunned people who have been divorced. They shun them, and they call them, they got that scarlet letter. There are people that reject somebody because they married outside of their ethnicity. Whether it's a white person, black person, or Asian person, or whatever, they, they look down and say, oh, they're not that good. Some churches have turned people away because of the length of their hair. For some women, oh, you can't have short hair at all. And men, you've got to cut it. Sorry, Alec. They, they've actually done this. Some churches look down on people who don't dress up a certain way, which is why I didn't wear a tie today. Not really. I just didn't want to wear one. But there are churches that do this. People all have all sorts of reasons for their prejudices. They try to justify why they feel the way they do. And yet, what does the Bible say? What does God actually say about this? At all. The Bible does say dress modestly. The Bible does say divorce is a sin. 
Yes, the Bible does mention some of these things, but are these things something that the church should say, you're not welcome here? Because I disagree with you on that, you cannot come here. Is it something we should be prejudiced about? And I can say for every one of these prejudices I just listed, there are people who struggle with these. Let me get a little real right now. There are people in this room who struggle with those. That hurts. And yet the gospel, the message of Christ is meant for all those people. And for us. The saving news of the Bible is that all of us can come to Christ. Aren't you glad you don't have to come to Christ? And to do so, you have to look like me? Yeah. Bold is beautiful. He made a few perfect heads, the rest have hair. That's right. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter if you come from a broken home, wear fancy clothes or not. It doesn't matter if you wear masks. Isn't that one of the new prejudices? Whether you're totally anti-mass or you're totally for mass, it's become a prejudice thing. I can tell you my personal stance on it, but when it comes to the gospel, I don't care. I don't care if you're wearing one or not. It shouldn't matter to you if I'm wearing one or not or if you're wearing one. It's Jesus. The gospel is for all people, and the church needs to be ready to take that message to all people, no matter this list or whatever else we can add to it. It's time for the church to get rid of those things and go. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit had given to the apostles, when they laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Now this sounds good. He just wants to help propel the church. Right, let's just be a little bit nice here and that, think that's what he's doing. And Peter said, Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent. There's a judgment word. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. Let's just think on the side of Simon for a moment. Maybe maybe this business with the disciples and, and performing these miracles is just like his, but better. New and improved. Maybe he can buy into this and, and do this and still do some good things. But whatever his motive was, it was an attempt to control the Spirit. And Peter, to this brand new believer, calls out judgment and rejects him for that, nips it in the bud, of this potential heresy. We need to be able to discern attempts to dilute the truth of God and to confront it. In this case, even bluntly. See, the persecuted church dealt with new problems. While they were in Jerusalem, they didn't have to worry about Simon's because Simon was a Samaritan and was out there. They were all here. 
You know, we don't have to deal with a lot of the things that Fort Wayne has to deal with. You know why? Because they're way over there, and we don't have to deal with them. But when the church gets out of their building, when the church becomes the real church and wants to talk about Jesus, we're going to deal with new problems. I've seen a church where they didn't have kids. There was nobody under the age of 40. And 40-year-olds were called kids. So that tells you what's going on in the church. And then a family came and there was kids going on. And the kids were kind of running around being kids. Playing outside and grabbing a tree. They're going to break that tree. A kid this big on a tree this big. He's not going to break the tree. They're trying to contain everything to match what they wanted. And when we do that, we are saying, you are not good enough for Jesus. Let me say something real quick. You're not. I'm not either, though. When we say that they can't come in, we're really saying they're not good enough for us. And Jesus deserves us. Because we're, we're the pinnacle. And there's some stuff happening in St. Joe Church. God is moving. I've seen people's lives transformed. I've seen people growing in their faith. And do you know what that means? Satan is coming. He's already here. He's working on us, trying to get us to stop and stumble and fall again. He wants us to be this little dormant church that just sits here and points fingers at everybody else. This church, the persecuted church, faced new problems. They faced faced them, and then they moved on. We right now, in this culture, are facing minor persecutions. We are. If I stand on the truth of something, I am persecuted. I've been persecuted on Facebook and with by other things, I have been persecuted because of what I say about Scripture. I have. Some of you has as well. But let me tell you something. It's going to get worse. We're not going to go back to the way it was in the 40s and 50s where the church was the center and everybody loved it. We are leaving that. We've left it. And we're going to a place where the church is a foreign concept. Maybe it should be the whole time. Because the church isn't meant to live here. We're meant to live there. And we do the work until we go home. We, the church, need to be ready to deal with these threats, these persecutions that are coming. We, the church, need to be ready to deal with them. And as I said months ago, COVID didn't hurt the church. It exposed weaknesses. Exposed weaknesses within leaderships of the churches. It exposed weaknesses of the church's influence. It exposed weaknesses of the church's idea of how to respond as the church. COVID didn't hurt the church or hinder the church. Let me say that because it's a tiny virus. And if the gates of hell cannot withstand the church, a virus can't stop us. But it exposed weaknesses that we turn blind eyes to or ignore. The fallout of COVID, we're going to see is how we choose to deal with those weaknesses. That's really, when the the church here, persecuted church, got persecuted, they decided, how are we going to deal with this? We're going to go preach and teach. They say we can't do it in Jerusalem? Great. There's more people to go talk to somewhere else. 
Uh, what are you going to do when, when it comes that they say you cannot post on social media, you cannot go to Walmart, you can't wear that type of t-shirt that promotes Jesus? You can't do any of that. What are you going to do? Are you going to cover it up so that you can still go buy your stuff? Or are you going to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and if it's not here, I will move somewhere else and still do it. Because it's not about living here comfortably. It's about taking as many people as there for eternity. And the persecuted church got that. And maybe it's time that we were persecuted. So that we can get this, that the scriptures is not something you just read or sit on a coffee table. That the scriptures are actually the life-giving blood of our faith, and we take that to heart, and we go do it. I heard a phrase on the radio, I listen to lots of sermons, some of them I think are horrible. I use those jokes here to see, and it, it proves, they're bad. But I heard this phrase, and I've been mulling over this for about three or four weeks. And the phrase was, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. So I started mulling over that. What does that mean? Well, I believe we need to give to the church, but I'm not going to give today. I, I just can't afford that. I believe we need to be telling people about Jesus. Well, I'm really not gifted or qualified or educated, so I'm not going to. Well, I believe we need to be committed to, well, you know, I've got so many things going on. I can say something with my mouth, but the parts of the Bible I actually do, parts I believe in. That's what he was saying, and I really mulled over it, and I started looking at my life. Do you know there's truth in that? The Bible says so many things we need to do as a response to our salvation, in obedience to God, in our love to God, and to share that with other people. For the most part, Christians in America are content with sitting on a Sunday morning, calling it good, and then going back to the rest of their life. We believe the parts of the Bible we actually do. The persecuted church believed the Word of God. And they didn't care. They didn't care if they were getting persecuted. They just wanted to tell more people about Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something that happens after Peter and John witnessed the faith of these Samaritans. Go to verse 25. After testifying and preaching the Word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. Now, it could have stopped right there. But it went on. Look what it says. And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. This is a huge transitional mark in the church. Peter has begun to recognize that God accepts all kinds of people, not just him. Or people that look like him. Not Jews. With Samaria clearly being saved and restored to God by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the church now sees the fulfillment and real beginning of their mission, which is to go out into all the world and tell everybody. Notice when we were reading this, that first part, they were on their way to Samaria, and they just got there. They just went straight there. We got a mission. You, you send a guy to the grocery store with a list. What does he bring home? Only the things on the list, unless he can't find it in the store. And then he's texting you and calling you, well, I can't find this, so we're moving on. But he's not going to go out of his way and say, hmm, I wonder if we have enough milk. It's not on the list. What about the church? We don't think that way. Guys are one track. We're going to get there. Peter and John, they get there. That's all they, all right, we got to go see if this is true. But yeah, what do they do on the way home? There's more people to tell. God's here. God's moving, and I want to make sure we extend that to any and everybody. 
Now that they're heading back, they stop and preach and teach about Jesus. The persecuted church has open eyes to minister to everybody. With open eyes, they see the opportunities to tell more people. This is such a shift in their thinking. Luke 9, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, the time is drawing near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven. Jesus res resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to the Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. There's a lot in that statement. Oh, we'll accept him if he comes to our turn. Put them second and make us first. We need to be a priority, not those arrogant people like that. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? John wanted to burn them up in their sins right there. And yet, in this part in Acts, he wants to save them from burning for eternity. See, he was thinking flesh and earth in the beginning. Now he's thinking eternal. And are we as a church ready to do that? To say, I don't want somebody to go to hell, and I will do everything I can to make sure they know the message. It's still up to them. It's still up to God to reach them. But I am not going to face God and have him say, why didn't you tell them? I brought you to them. I lined it all up, and you did not tell them. They had a chance to come to heaven. Why didn't you do it? Because we only believe the parts of the Bible we do. Even though they were persecuted, the church stayed on mission. Even though they were being persecuted, they focused on telling more and more people about Christ. And it's time we do the same thing today. It's time that we face this persecution that's coming and, and realistically look at Satan and say, bring it, because my God is bigger. It's time to stand up and say, you know what, bring all this calamity, bring all this devastation. I don't care because this is not my home. But you will not keep me quiet. How many times are we going to let talking about grandchildren or restaurants or other things trump our idea of speaking the truth about Jesus? I'm not saying don't talk about your grandchildren, grandmas. We're not going to stop you. I know that. The rest of us. Who here has been transformed by Jesus? Who here knows Jesus personally? Who here wants to go to heaven? Who here wants to make sure heaven is full of more and more people? Who here wants to make sure that when we get to heaven, there's a long line of people that can say, thank you for introducing me to the one who saved me. Who here is ready to say, I don't care what the government or culture says, I'm here for Jesus for a little bit of time so I can be with him forever. Who's here ready to be, I am the church. Then stand and let's do it. Let's not just talk about it. Let's not just come on a Sunday morning. Let's actually do it. It's time to scatter. It is time to scatter.